You're listening to The Homeschool Dropout. I'm your host, Mike Roberts. Let's talk about bridging the gap between homeschool and the professional world. Before we get going, shout out to listener Rod underscore V. This listener said, I've been curious about homeschooling, and I love how this podcast focuses on the effects of homeschooling on adults and professionals. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I started the show, because having been homeschooled, even I wasn't exactly sure where everyone ended up. So it's been really great seeing all the different places homeschoolers are in their adult lives. If you'd like a shout out in my next episode, head to Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom and leave a rating and a review. Welcome back, everyone. Mike Roberts here. I am joined today by John England. He is the Education Policy Analyst at Libertas Institute. Did I get that right, John? Yes, you did. Good job. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, appreciate you joining us. I'll give listeners a little bit of your background real quick. This is a different episode. It's special. I tend to focus, and listeners should know this by now, on interviewing homeschoolers and highlighting their experience and what went well and what went poorly and what are you doing now. But I caught word of John's work through my brother, who's involved in the legislature in Utah. And I just felt like I got to get this guy on my show. And so John has about 14 years of experience in the public school system. Seven years, he was an elementary school teacher. Seven years, he was a principal at an elementary school. He has his bachelor's in elementary education from the University of Utah. And he also has his master's in educational leadership from Western Governors University, which sounds like a really great place for people who are who have families or need to do night school. It sounds like a really good option for, uh, I guess, like upper education in that sense. So different, John, you were not homeschooled, but you're heavily involved with kind of the homeschooling initiative now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And actually, my wife and I, we took the leap into the homeschool world about two years ago. This is our second year. So we are homeschooling. We have five children. We're homeschooling three of them. And we have two of them that are actually attending a local micro school. Okay. Am I out of line if I were to say you are pandemic homeschoolers? That's a term that I've been hearing in, I don't know, the, the, in the airwaves. Yes and no. <laughs> okay. That's a, that's a good way of, of putting it. We started just, so we, we got a little taste of it because of the pandemic. Sure. And we actually sent our kids back to school and it just, we looked really quickly and we just realized it wasn't fitting what we wanted for our children. And so we pulled them back and we started homeschooling them at home. And we found this micro school that's, it's like three days a week, super easy. And we sent them to this local micro school, some of our older ones, it's kind of like junior high aged ones. And so we sent one of our daughters there and they, our kids are just thriving and it's been amazing. I love to hear. I think when a family is able to, like you said, take the plunge, be brave, go for it. I think the results can often be pretty surprising. It goes a lot better than I think some people anticipate. But the reason I felt like you would be such a good guest for the show is because of your work right now in Utah. There was a house bill this last session. I believe it's passed now. It's law. Is that correct? I think you shared that with me last time. Yeah, that is correct. So House Bill 215, that passed. It passed the House and it passed the Senate with a two-thirds majority, which is a super majority. And it's been signed by the governor and it is law and it's an education spending account 
which parents can use to either pay like a private school tuition, or they can use to pay for homeschool curriculum, or they can do what I'm calling like an unbundled education, where maybe they take one or two classes from the private school or a public school, and then they find some private tutors, and then they do some homeschooling. And so they kind of take the best of all of those things together, and but they can use it for all of those things. Okay. Yeah. So let's dig into the bill. I want to get into the details, especially since it's really exciting. This is available in Utah. So I want parents to know how they can access it. But I also know that there's a strong trend in the country right now. I know Arizona has a similar law. I believe New Hampshire has a similar law. And so why don't you walk us through what options did homeschooling parents have before the bill to supplement their child's education, to get resources, And how has the bill changed those things? Can you give us like a before and after? What is the bill doing? Yeah. So what it does is there's kind of two types of what I would call homeschoolers. There's a legal definition of homeschooling in Utah, which basically a parent will send in to the local district a a legal affidavit saying, I am taking on the responsibility of educating my children, which means once they do that, they're not taking money from the government. They're not taking anything like that. And they are, they're saying, this is us. And they don't answer to anybody. They just do whatever they want. But there's kind of a new, what I would call a new generation of homeschoolers. They're not legally homeschoolers. So parents who decide to take this educational spending account will be considered scholarship recipients in the law. And that legal distinction is there on purpose to protect those that just want nothing to do with government money. And I totally get those people. But for some, they would like access to the public education dollars to spend for their child's education, just like the public school students are getting in the public schools. And so what this bill does is it sets up the ability for parents to have an account, a digital wallet, so to speak, kind of similar to a PayPal, how a PayPal would work to purchase things like private school tuition. Like I said earlier, the the amount is $8,000. If you're using a private school, that will probably take all of that amount. Per student? Yeah, $8,000. Now, compared to what the public schools are paying, they're paying about $10,000 per student. Hmm. So just a percentage of what the public schools are spending on children in their education. That's kind of the really exciting thing. And so again, it's because it's an educational spending account and not like a straight voucher. So vouchers are like somebody writes a check to a private school for your tuition. That's what a voucher is. This does so much more because again, as a a pseudo homeschooler, you can bring in, you know, you can pay for things like the curriculum and you can buy whatever curriculum you would like to buy. And you can pay for science experiments in your home and you can truly individualize the education of your children with this education spending account. It's amazing. Okay. So it is totally philosophically agnostic. You don't have to participate in any specific curriculums. You just have to show that the funds are going towards educational purposes. Yep. That's right. And there, I mean, Again, working with the government, there's going to be some limitations. Like you can't go and buy like a plane ticket to Florida or whatever. (laughs) For your field trip. Yeah. Honestly, (laughs) uh, would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah, that would be amazing and awesome. And here's the thing is public schools take these trips to like Disneyland and Disney World all the time. They do it, but you know, this it's denied in something like that in this bill. And so it is completely agnostic as to how you educate your children. So again, you can use a private school. Public schools can actually set up classes if they want to, like after school or, hey, you want to take this 
you know, calculus class at the public school. Here's the fee for that. It's 200 bucks for the semester or whatever. So they can't themselves be providers in, in this system if they want to. Okay. Okay. So, so I have a nephew who's very like STEM inclined and loves the sciences. Theoretically, I, I'm not sure what balance of homeschooling he's doing right now. He's in high school, but if he was homeschooled and was thinking, okay, I just want to do like, I say I want to take AP calculus at the high school the high school could open up an option for an unenrolled student to come in and basically pay tuition through their education spending account to the high school, just so that my nephew could like get that resource and the school can get payment for it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh. They could do that. And yeah, so they could set up a specific tuition amount for those classes for these recipients to to use the public schools and continue to get some of the things that you're not going to find in a lot of the private schools, or at least maybe individuals that would be teaching it. Right. So I like that so much more. It's individually driven. It's kind of a bottoms up approach. Absolutely. The individual is driving the interest and also very market-based. If the school is not providing a good AP Calc class, then my nephew can go to a private school that has like a really strong AP Calc class and can vote with the dollars and support that system. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's kind of one of the kind of political phrases that they use in this across the nation is that it gives parents the ability to vote with their feet of what education yes. they would like to mm -hmm. do. It's a big motivator to the public schools to be able to you know, improve their education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's actual, I was going to use the word threat, but maybe I should say there's been a challenge to their quality and incentive to improve. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what you see when you look at places that have had this for a while. The Not just the people who are receiving a voucher or a ESA like this, an education spending account like this, you see that their personal education improves, but also the offering from the public education system also improves. And that's across the board. It's amazing. Okay, so say I'm a parent in Utah. How do I have to apply? Does the child apply? How does it work? Yep. So it will be an application process. And that is because it, the law is so new, that application has not yet been set up. Okay. But it will be very similar to registering for a public school, actually. You'll have to verify that you actually live in Utah. So you'll have to provide maybe like a bank statement or something like that. Something that has your address on it that says, yes, I, I live in Utah and I can therefore receive these funds. So that will be one requirement. But like I said, very similar to registering for a public school if you decide to take your children there. And then once you're in, they'll set up what's called a digital wallet. So there's companies like Class Wallet. There's a couple other companies that do this where, and it will work similar to, like I said, PayPal, that parents can then use these funds and they'll have a marketplace of places they can go. Amazon is one of these marketplaces that that's already approved on Class Wallet that they can go and be like, hey, we actually want to learn about the life cycle. So why don't we get this ladybug kit and we can watch the ladybugs go from oh, so cool. eggs and to yeah. their, yeah, and into the larva. And then they turn into the ladybugs and away we go. And so there's amazing just things that they can do with the funds that way. But it's not just that. I mean, maybe your child is actually struggling with reading. You can go and get a reading therapist that will work with them specifically because maybe they're just having a really hard time and what you've tried as a mom or a dad isn't working. I, you know, I was homeschooled about 20 years ago and this just was not available. And my brain is just spinning on how different our experience would have been. It was fine. Like I'm not complaining at all. I really thrived in my homeschooling experience is the right education for me. 
And it would have been so different if we could have kind of like picked bits and pieces from a lot of different sources and supplemented what I wanted to learn at my pace in my way. This is just really powerful for students. So parents, if you're in Utah, definitely take advantage of this. Look into, they're called ESAs, Education Spending Accounts. And I think once that documentation is in place, and if you're on the fence about homeschooling, this might, I don't know, relax you a little bit because you have a lot more options now and there's funding to help. And I think this is happening, correct me, John, if I'm wrong, Arizona and New Hampshire have the similar legislation? There's a few states that have it. So Arizona probably has the most robust system. Every student in Arizona is eligible and funded. So they have the best system out there. Florida is close behind. West Virginia has passed something similar. New Hampshire has a similar one, but I think theirs is specific to is income-based. So it's low-income students who are doing it. And so in Utah, ours is, it's it's called a universal education spending account. So every student is eligible, but there is a preference for low-income students. So they'll be the ones that are selected first, low-income students are. And there's a cap on the amount that we have. So about 5,000 students will be able to access this currently. And then beyond that, we'll just have to ask the legislature to improve the funding for the program to get more. So that there are some limitations with that that come. And so it might not be for everybody. It's, it is one of those things. Some of the, there are what some people will call strings attached to the bill, but for some, those strings will feel like ropes and for others, they'll feel like threads. And so one of the things that parents will have to do besides applying for it is at the end of the year, they'll have to provide some kind of an assessment option, but it is pretty permissive, meaning that the parents can choose what the assessment is. So they can choose a nationally norm reference test, think like an ACT in high school, or they can take the state level test if they want to, or they can simply submit a portfolio of work showing what the child was doing at the beginning of the year and what they were doing at the end of the year and just show growth. And so there, there are some options there. And like I said, some parents will find that as ropes and they won't want to do that. Others will find that as threads and find it super easy and they'll be excited to do it. You're absolutely right. If you're not interested in working with government money, then probably the first group of homeschoolers that you described who just say, we're going to do it, we're on our own, we're good to go. Then you're free to do whatever you want and you have no one to account to. But if you want to tap into these ESAs, these education spending accounts, what you're saying is there is some accountability at the end of the year. And I'm remembering something my mom learned as she was homeschooling us. There's a lot of documentation that you do need to do you just keeping track of what what was learned when was it learned how am i recording that so i think new parents even if your child's young and especially if you're looking at these esas just start recording documenting so that at the end of the year you can show some growth and some change and do it early because my one of my older sisters she struggled getting into a program in college because there wasn't a lot of documentation of her work In the public school, if she'd been public school, there would have been more. It just naturally, they just, because you're integrated in the system, they can pull all this stuff. But it was hard for her to show that she did have the skill set. If parents are looking at this, just try and develop a documentation system so that you can demonstrate that learning did happen. Yeah, and that's something that my wife and I are learning about right now. Because like I said, we just kind of jumped in about this, like this is our second year into homeschooling and we do have a high school student. And so we're we're learning about the idea of like, okay, what do we need to document to show if she decides she wants to go a college route? What do we need to gather to show that she is learning? 
And so that's definitely something that we've had to work through and we're, we're still trying to figure it out. But that is definitely good advice to document. And that that's something to keep in mind if you decide to jump into homeschooling or, or even using this ESA to, to school your children. I want to bring up a little <laughs> incident that I had on social media. So as a companion to my show, I have an Instagram page with the same name, the homeschool dropout. And I became aware of this house bill through a Twitter thread and I read through it and it just fired me up. I was like, this, this is why we have the show because there's such a, a lack of understanding as to how homeschooling works. So I'm curious as to what your response would be to this. I'm just going to kind of like capture what this gentleman was bringing up. I know what my response was, but I don't want to taint you. I mean, some things he said, his wife's an elementary school teacher. And he says that 10 times out of 10 times, students that come back to the system are very far behind. They can't read, they can't write, they don't know their letters, they're very neglected, there's a lack of rigor in homeschooling. So his basic concern was, if there are public funds going to homeschoolers, his impression was homeschoolers, <laughs> literally 10 out of 10 times, fall behind, they don't perform, there's no quality, why should I use my public funds to go somewhere where there's nothing happening? I'm curious what your response would be to just something like that, because I got, I got unhinged. Oh, for sure. And uh, coming from the public system, I get it. Because here's the thing, probably the ones that are coming back to the public system full-time, homeschooling wasn't working out, right? And so they're like, hey, this isn't working for my kid. I tried this and it's not working. So now I need to come back to something that maybe will work better. And so I feel like he's got a very limited understanding of what homeschooling actually looks like for people that are doing it successfully, because it's the ones that come back full-time that homeschool didn't work successfully for them. And so they're, so maybe they are like have don't have their letter names and letter sounds in an elementary setting because it wasn't working. And so again, it's that understanding of choosing a parent's choice and honoring that parent's choice. And you can easily go out and find in the world, like negative stories about homeschoolers and things that are going on, you know, they do I exist. Yeah, I think recently there was something, I can't remember the exact state, but in the Midwest that was heinous, but it happened, right? It, right. I believe it dealt with like white supremacy or something like that. Those exist. But here's the thing is just because we have public schools doesn't mean that those will cease to exist. Parents will still, if they're white supremacists, still teach their kids to be white supremacists. That's not going to change. Like we can't tell people to stop believing how they believe, but you know, if we provide them with options to do different things like maybe they will grow and it will be different. And that's the main point that I guess I would like to to point out is I think his experience is very tainted of what he had because his wife is probably getting the homeschool students who it wasn't successful for whatever reason, whether the parents were neglectful or just the parent, the child maybe needed more structure. And there are kids that definitely need more structure and some that we need less structure. But again, the problem that I have with the public system and part of the reason that I left is the public system is a conveyor belt. They expect every child to be reading by the end of first grade, but a child's reading ability is a continuum, right? Some kids will start reading at three or four years old, but other kids on the natural bell curve of humanity will not read until 10 or 11. And that happens in the public school system. And that happens in the private school system. And that happens in the homeschool system. And it, it's just a realization that every child is different and they need different things. 
I guess as the host, I'm thrilled as to your response, because that's basically where I landed too. And my response to him was, first of all, you're only seeing a very small sample size of homeschoolers, and then you're extrapolating and using an attribution bias to say, this whole group is like this. No group's a monolith. And that's just, that really rubbed me wrong. That really just like ground my gears. And I heard you kind of reflecting on that as well. And it does happen. There are homeschoolers that struggle. And I think homeschoolers as well should have grace with each other it is okay to go back to the system. That is fine. Like we have different needs. <laughs> so I just see sometimes homeschoolers turn on each other when there's a recognition that, okay, we need to just go back for a little bit. And and there's resources within the public system that will help that can be accessed. It's not that the public system is not providing some kind of level of education. They are, but it doesn't fit every kid. And that's the main thing that I want to point out is it doesn't fit every kid. And just like homeschool won't fit every kid and family either. There are other options to homeschooling. And I I love homeschooling my kids. Before I go to work every day, I have one of my children that I get to sit and teach math to. Oh, which so cool. I love teaching as an elementary teacher. I loved teaching math. And so, so I get to cool. sit with her and teach her math. And it's this one-on-one time I get, you know, 30 to 45 minutes every day. And she's flying through the math stuff probably because it's one-on-one, but I love it. It's this cool, like relationship building opportunity that I have as a dad. Yeah. Look at that classroom ratio, right? It doesn't get better than that. <laughs> so that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And my second main contention and I brought up to him was basically what you're saying. Your premise is that all kids need to fit neatly within your statistical bell curve, but we are just not that way. We are individuals. And it reminds me of, I recently read Carl Jung's The Undiscovered Self, and he spends so much time, he's a psychologist in the, in the early, like mid 20th century. He spends so much time explaining that you cannot get lost in like statistical measurements. Individuals cannot become statistics. And so what the bill does, what we're talking about is homeschooling allows people to be people, to be really special, to be individuals. Your daughter probably thrives learning math that way. And it works really well for her. I truly for myself, the public system was really great for me for math. I just loved it. I ate it up. I loved the the pace and like tests. I love tests for some reason. So yeah, everyone's different. And I, I just, I love what the bill is doing. I love that like... It's giving parents the ability to drive their children's education with the child and kind of navigate that with them and say, if this is working, let's do it. If it's not working, let's change. It's really cool. I'm honestly jealous that, or maybe just thrilled that families get this option now. Well, and that's one thing that I would say to those that have been homeschooling for a while. Like, so back when you were homeschooled, you know, it was probably kind of like a fringe group. I yeah. would say, I don't know, like there weren't a lot of them, right? No, it's grown no. a ton in the past mm-hmm. few years, but those parents really paved the way for us to be where we're at today. And I'm super grateful for them to to go out there and A, they had to fight laws. I mean, at one point homeschooling was illegal. And so you had to go out and you had to fight the laws and you had to change the laws to make it legal and to make it as free as possible because that's what the parents wanted. And that takes a certain individual to fight that kind of a system. And I'm super grateful for those that did. Yeah, they definitely blazed a trail in very murky waters trying to reaffirm their role as parents, feeling that it was their right, privilege, honor, prerogative to teach their children their values in the way that made sense to them. I just, I don't know. I suppose my personal values resonate with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And in a lot of countries, it is illegal. I have friends in Germany 
they cannot homeschool. It's illegal. A lot of, I think the EU's it's illegal. Canada's kind of weird. It's legal, but it's like so weird in Canada still to homeschool. But yeah, there were definitely 30, 40 years ago, those pioneers homeschooling. Weird. It was just so, so like you were out on the fringes if you were doing yeah. that. So. Yeah. But look at where it led to. They probably didn't see it as it is today. Like They probably never thought that a day would come where homeschooling is talked about and there's podcasts about it and <laughs> all kinds of groups and co-ops yeah. and now these micro schools where I can go one or two days a week to to have kind of that school experience, but like I can still homeschool my kid for three days a week and things like that. And you mentioned these other countries. Korea is actually an interesting kind of case study where their academics is a really big deal to the Korean culture. And what happens is that a lot of parents will pay for their child to get maybe a micro school or a homeschool and really dive into all these different things that you can do currently in America. During the school day, they do it after school. And then what the kids end up doing is sleeping during the school day in their public school system. Whoa. Okay, wait. This is documented. Like, Yeah, I'll, wow. I'll send you the thing. But I, I believe it was, it was either like the Cato Institute or maybe oh, sure. it was the Heritage okay. Foundation. One of those groups that they went and they talked about choice in education. And this was many years ago that this came out, probably like 2010. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been out for a while, but they talk about these kids and it talks about these, they get some teachers and this is where an education marketplace becomes amazing. You get some teachers that are just amazing and they take the technology to do what we're doing. We're not in the same location, but we're having this conversation, right? You can do that with a school setting. We, everybody did it during the pandemic for those few months when everything shut down. And then for some schools, like multiple years after that, but if you're a good teacher and you learn how to do a good online classroom and help students that way, think about how many parents you can attract there and you can provide all these things. Or maybe you do it where you record yourself teaching something as students get stuck, they can schedule a one-on-one -on -one time to go through it, right? So you could teach so many more students where some kids will take that video and they'll learn. And so there, there's an entrepreneurial aspect that I think comes with an education choice movement. Yeah, I really liked your word choice, the education marketplace, and perhaps a controversial take on that. There really has been, for a lot of years, almost a century, a real monopoly on education that's come from the government, one single source of education, and that's starting to be aggressively challenged. And I really, really like the idea of an education marketplace, like any market should work. And I don't want to get into econ or anything, because I know you and I could talk about that for a while. But yeah, it's just a really powerful thing for families to be able to make a values-based choice from themselves. I'm curious, looking at overall homeschooling trends, from your perspective, your work at Libertas, there's a movement in the US, a lot of parents are starting to homeschool. What do you feel from your perspective is driving that? Why are a lot of parents starting to consider this option? That's a really good question. I think part of it is, think about where our like even just other marketplaces have gone, right? I'm looking at shoes. I have a niece who loves shoes. Okay. She can get online and she can customize her version of Adidas online before she even purchases it. And it comes looking exactly how she designed it online, right? Mm -hmm. We are used to customization currently in, in just the way that we buy and shop for things, right? If I want a red car, I can go find a red car. And if I want to then take that car and add all these souped up things and make it amazing. Mm. I can, right? 
And the public education system doesn't provide that. It's a standardized education. And standardization in certain things is, it makes sense, right? If I want my Oreo cookies to look like an Oreo cookie when it comes in the package, right? I don't want them to be this variety of things. <laughs> but like you were saying is humans are not standardized. We're very different people from day to day. Like I am a different person today than I was last year, right? Yeah. We're constantly learning and growing. And education should do the same, should constantly be this thing of learning and growing and studying. And right now, I maybe need to learn better writing skills, right? So I go and I find something specific that I need. What I need as a writer is going to be different than what my teenage daughter needs as a writer and going to be different than what my seven-year-old boy needs as a writer. And that it's very individualized to the person. And that's something that I think parents are starting to wake up and realize I'm not getting the individual touch that I would like for my child, right? And anybody who has more than one child definitely knows that <laughs> no two children are the same, even if you have twins. So is that what drove your family? What were the motivating causes? Because you came from the public system. That was your career. You understood it. And now you've changed careers in a lot of ways. And now you're homeschooling. Were those your motivators? That was definitely part of our motivation. We're a religious family. And one of the things that's very important to us is our, our religious beliefs. And so we wanted an ability to have that be part of their education and not these two separate siloed things too. I know there's a lot of homeschoolers who are religious and not all of them. Some of them are very secular and they stick to those things and that's great. But that's the thing that is great about like a homeschooling situation is my wife and I, we get to make it how we want it to be. Yeah. And the parents who want something different can. And in fact, there's a family just down the road who homeschools and they do it very differently than us, even though we're the same religion. She's very involved in things like homeschool co-ops and wants her kids to be involved with these groups. And my wife really loves just having the kids one-on-one -on -one teaching them. And then we go to other group activities that we don't really consider part of our homeschool day. And so those are just these amazing things that we get it individualized for our family and for the kids and what works for them. I think it's tremendously powerful. I I think my family was informed religiously as well too. My parents really wanted us to understand their beliefs and understand why they believe those things in a greater context. When I learned world history, it was world history with a very Christian, here's everything that was happening in the world and here are all the important Christian aspects that are happening in the world and here's how they overlay and influence each other. I, I don't know. I didn't take history in public school. I just, my senses, I don't think I would have gotten that in the public system. And, and it's funny you mention, I sometimes bucket homeschoolers in two very general buckets. You have a lot of religiously informed homeschoolers. And then for lack of a better word, a lot of hippie homeschoolers where they just want like the wild and free. Let's just get out there and explore. So it's just kind of funny how that manifests. Yeah. And that's an interesting aspect of it too. And I'm not sure that I'm at that point where I'm, I think the term that I've heard is called unschooling. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Where I'm just like, we're going to just go out and learn. And when a kid's ready to learn, they'll, we'll teach them that thing. There are definitely like even micro school models that are based on this very learner driven activity where they can get out into the world and, and away they go and just, you know, they go spend a day at the museum to learn about history as opposed to now to textbook and reading about it. And so that's, Definitely. I think that's an amazing thing that's out there and being able to, again, mix and match that for some parents will be able, will be a good thing. Right. And that's what you can do when you homeschool, you can mix and match it. 
Why don't you share with listeners your work with the Libertas Institute? What do you do in Utah? What's your, I guess, your mission statement and what's your personal involvement? Yeah, so at Libertas, so we do a whole bunch of different things. I work specifically on the education side of our work at Libertas. And in education, what we want to do is empower parents, students, and teachers to innovate and improve education. And and that's what we're trying to do. And so we are a free market think tank. And so we definitely look at free market principles of how we can influence and improve education. That's how we went from having no cars to mass produced cars from Henry Ford to now Elon Musk making amazing electric cars, right? Mm -hmm. Is through a free market system. And that's what we want to provide for the education system as well is just this free market ability. And so we work on policies that will limit restrictions on how people are doing that. And that's what this uh, Utah Fits All Scholarship, the education spending accounts do, is it it frees people to be able to choose something different than the standardized education system. Okay. And then you, so you work as the education policy analyst at Libertas doing that work for them. Yep. So I'll identify opportunities specifically to limit restrictions. I see. Provide better things. It'll be like, hey, I heard about this policy in Georgia. This is something we should try and push in Utah. So those types of things are what I do. One of the things that I really passionate about, actually, recently, kind of goes in the same vein of you know, education spending accounts, but a new movement called micro schools that are coming out, and some of your listeners may know about them. But these are really low cost private schools, and again, they might go two days, they might go three days, they might go hmm. four days to the to school each day but they're really low tuition schools. But their biggest problem that they run into across the nation are not education laws, but zoning laws. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> building occupancy laws. They're, they're things where they'll go and they'll buy a store, a store that used to be there. And it's a business occupancy. Oh, I and see. And then they have to come in and oh. spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to put in a sprinkler system to make it an educational occupancy. And it's just this really oh, big geez. kind of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but just this massive roadblock that they run yeah. into. And so we're working on that, trying to find out a way that we can limit those types of things. There's lots of places that we would feel comfortable and safe sending our children that can't be a school. Right. Some of those are churches, museums, libraries. None of those are education occupancies, but I feel very comfortable having my child go sure. to class in any of those buildings, but they can't. They can't have a school there. Oh, no kidding. Okay. So it's just red tape and like kind of the bureaucracy of it all. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, listeners, yeah, definitely go check out Libertas. I believe you mostly function in Utah, but I'm sure you're influencing other states as well. And then John, I believe you have your own podcast. Why don't you share about that a little bit and then I can link to it in my show notes page. Yeah. So my wife and I have started our own podcast here in Utah. It's the Diamond Education Podcast. And Diamond is spelled D-I-M-O-N-D. It's a family name that came from my wife's side of the family, just because education is a family thing. And so what we do is we highlight a lot of these education entrepreneurs and these different things that they're doing and let them come on and talk about their school and their model and sometimes education at large. And we just feel that a lot of parents, especially those that are still in the public system, they need information so that they can make a good decision on what is best for their child. And so we're just trying to provide them with the information there. So you can follow that at Diamond Education Podcast or diamonded, D-I-M-O-N-D.com is our website. 
Okay, so that's diamond, D-I-M-O-N-D, ed.com. That's your website. Then they can find you on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, the Diamond Education Podcast. Yep, that's right. Um, Well, I hope listeners go check that out. I know that there's a lot of need for, I don't know, different ways to parent and educate, especially when you're homeschooling. So I I think that's feeling a, a real need in the market right there. Okay, John, well, I really appreciate your time. I was so thrilled to see that this bill had reached Utah and that your organization had helped push it through. And now it's an option for parents. It's just really, I think it's going to do wonders and change a lot of lives. A lot of kids are going to be able to explore their education in a very unique and colorful way. So appreciate your time. We will have to stay in touch. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been a great conversation. Hey listeners, if you enjoy the homeschool dropout, the best way to support the show and increase its value to you and other homeschoolers is to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So head there now and we'll see you next week.